You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. In the name of Allah, the most gracious, ever merciful. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Welcome to another episode of The Breakfast Show here on the Voice of Islam radio station. You're listening to myself, Samar Jalis Ahmed and Daniel Ahmed as well. And we will be with you, God willing, all the way up until 9 o'clock. So if you do have any questions, any remarks, any comments that you'd like to make, please feel free to do so. The number for you, as always, is 0208-687-7878. And of course, you can hit us up on our socials, uh, on our Twitter and on Instagram at Voice of Islam UK. Um, we are talking about some very interesting topics today. Um, we're going to be speaking um, about three topics, uh, as we usually do here on the Tuesday uh, Breakfast Show. In the first hour, uh, we're going to be discussing uh, um, how to celebrate the International Day of Education. Um, after the eight o'clock news, we'll be discussing a remarkable discovery of an entire new layer of brain tissue. And last but not least, we will also be speaking about artificial pancreas for diabetic patients. Is this the way forward? So let us know your uh, opinions, your thoughts in regards to these topics. Um, Like I said, this is your radio station and we'd love for you to get involved. So do pick up the phone and give us a call. 0208-687-7878. Um, before we get into the, uh, um, the 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 front pages and the headlines for today, uh, we'll be going through the the, the news as well. But uh, um, even before that, Daniel and Jalis, how are you guys doing today? Um, Alhamdulillah, I'm doing good. Yeah, uh, so. it's pretty cold outside as well. So yeah. yeah, yeah, it's really cold. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it it, it, it is cold and it has been cold for for the last. Uh, well, a couple of weeks now, but I think today was the first time that uh, I didn't have to defrost uh, the, the the windshield. So that was a uh, uh, that that was that that was at least one pleasant thing uh, um, about today. Yeah, same. Today I didn't have to. Um, well, I mean, starting my car usually when it's quite cold, mm-hmm. it takes some time to start. Uh, a couple more seconds just to the engine to warm up. Exactly. But today was a bit alright. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but yeah, what's the what's the what's the weather looking like for not just for today but for the rest of the uh, week? Yeah, so um, today the northwest will be largely cloudy with the light rain and drizzle in places, and the south and east will generally be drier and brighter, but chillier in the far southeast with cloud lingering. Uh, tonight, uh, a bra- a band of rain will move southeastwards uh, across Northern Ireland and Scot- Scotland. England and Wales will remain mostly dry with clear spells and variable amounts of clouds. Cloud. Uh, Tomorrow, uh, Wednesday, uh, tomorrow it will be mostly cloudy in England and Wales as the band of patchy rain gradually moves south-eastwards. The north will have bright spells and northern Scotland will see scattered showers. Uh, further out um, Thursday to Saturday, we see that uh, Thursday will see drier and brighter, a uh, brighter day for most. But there may be a few showers in eastern areas. Friday will be cloudy in the northern uh, in north, with rain moving into southwest Scotland later on. The south will see a dry and bright day. Uh, well, lucky for them. And uh, Saturday will be a settled day, a settled day for most, with bright spells and variable clouds uh, variable cloud although northern scotland will see uh, will have some showers uh, so 
it's quite um it's quite cold mm-hmm. showers and uh you know it's not um the sun isn't going to be out for i guess till saturday yeah yeah um but 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 at least it's uh, it seems as if it's not going to rain uh, as much so so it, although it's cold um it, i mean the rain just adds to it yeah, it? yeah. It, it, it makes it much colder <laughs> even even if the the, the temperature is the same it just it just gives you that feeling isn't yeah, it yeah cuz with the cold you can wear gloves you can wear a scarf you can yeah. wear a hat but with <clears> rain it's uh if you don't have an umbrella then yeah. it's not really a pleasant day <laughs> exactly exactly um, going to, uh, through the newspapers now, Zawahi, uh, Zahabi faces sack and killer posed as a child. The Daily Mirror leads with Rishi Sunak's decision in order uh, to, uh, to order an investigation into Conservative Party Chairman uh, Nadim Zahabi's tax affairs. Uh, the paper says that the Prime Minister was unaware of a payment Mr. Zahabi um, had made to settle a dispute with HMRC last summer while he was Chancellor. The PM would not have publicly backed Mr. Zahavi if he had known the full story. The I says it reports that the Tory chair will be asked to resign if he is found to have broken ethics rules. The paper features an interview with actress Helena Bonham Carter, who says women get cut off because they are deemed too old. Uh, but the Guardian says Mr. Sunak is undergoing uh, undergrowing pressure over whether or not to be, although uh, over whether or not he knew about the HMRC inquiry when he appointed Mr. Zahawi to his cabinet. A source told the paper that Downing Street had been aware of a penalty as part of a settlement with HMRC when the PM appointed Mr. Zahawi. However, Number Ten denied the claim. The paper says. Mm-hmm. The Financial Times says uh, Mr. Zahawi is fighting for his political life uh, after Sunak ordered an ethics review into his tax affairs. The paper also reports that the government faces another ethics crisis with BBC chairman Richard Sharp under the under the uh, investigation over the process which led to his appointment. The Daily Star says, uh, the irrelevant Daily Star says that it considered buying a lettuce to pit against Mr. Zahavi, but decided it wasn't worthwhile because he looks set for the job. The Times says, Metropolitan Police recruits are still being accepted using mostly online assessments, raising concerns that rogue candidates could be missed. The Met told the paper it was reintroducing in-person interviews later this year. The Daily Express reports that uh, Lawangin uh, Abdul Rahimzai, a 21-year-old man found guilty of murdering an aspiring Royal Marine, had previously killed two people in Serbia months before arriving in the UK. The paper says he told Border Force officers he was 14. The Daily Telegraph reports Abdul, Abdul Rahim Zai had an asylum application rejected in Norway before he was granted permission to stay in the UK in 2019. He claimed to be an unaccompanied child fleeing the Taliban, the paper says. Elsewhere, it reports China has the ability to spy on people in Britain through microchips embedded in laptops, cars, fridges and light bulbs. A report sent to the government warned the technology poses a wide-ranging threat uh, to the UK national security. Mm-hmm. So that was uh, the um, the front pages for today. Uh, just just a quick overview, a quick summary as well. 
Um, Nadim Zahavi's tax affairs take up space on many of the front pages for a third day in a row now. The I, <coughs> excuse me, the I says Rishi Sunak would not have backed his party chairman uh, had he known about the penalty payment from HMRC and that Mr. Zahavi now faces the sack, quote-unquote. The Guardian says Mr. Zahavi's allies hope the investigation by the ethics advisor will buy him some more time in the role. The Times says even if he is cleared, he may not save his career because the role of chairman is often seen as minister for the Today programme. And uh, Mr. Zahavi uh, cannot appear on any show without being peppered with questions about tax. The Daily Star uh, says it doesn't need to compare Mr. Zahavi's time left in the cabinet to the shelf life of a lettuce, as it did with Liz Truss, because he is already toast, uh, quote-unquote. The uh, Daily Express, the Daily Telegraph and the Sun's front pages say, say an Afghan refugee who had been convicted of murder in Serbia has now been found guilty of killing a man in Dorset, lied uh, about his age to gain entry into the UK. Conservative MP Tobias Elwood is quoted in the Telegraph calling for an inquiry into how a dangerous person slipped through the net, quote-unquote. Boris Johnson takes over the, the the Daily Mail's front pages with an article imploring Ukraine's allies to give the country the arms it wants, asking what the hell, quote-unquote, is the West waiting for? Mr. Johnson also calls for NATO to admit Ukraine as a member. The Times points out uh, that when he was prime minister, he said there was no way there would be uh, that that would happen anytime soon. Another quote taken from him. The uh, Time leads on a story about the Metropolitan Police being one of a number of forces yet to bring back in-person interviews for potential recruits after they were scrapped during the pandemic. The uh, other forces named uh, are Avon and Somerset and the West Midlands. The paper says the potential lack of scrutiny risks the forces hiring rogue officers, quote-unquote. Uh, the Met says uh, it will bring back-to-back face, uh, uh, back, uh, face-to-face uh, interviews this year. Sorry. Uh, Avon and Somerset police say there are some in-person elements in its hiring process. Um, this is um, on top of uh, or in light of uh, what also what happened, what we saw last week in the Tuesdays uh, newspapers as well, in which there was a, um, a, a, a person of the uniform and he committed so many heinous crimes. And I think it was about 61 uh, rape uh, assaults that he did uh, uh, as well. And he would keep women in his uh, in his house, in his um, in one of the storerooms or cabinets uh, and just lock them there and not give them any food mm. or drink as well. And just uh, yeah, I mean yeah, yeah, I mean that's quite it's quite shocking when you hear something like this on the news, um, especially with a man in position. Uh, you know, it's not uh, something pleasant. Yeah, I mean, we even last week we were talking about this as well. It was me and uh, uh, Mubarak Zamini last week, um, and we were t- talking about that. He said the same ex- exact thing as well. That it's shocking uh, when we see this, and and I disagreed then as well, and I'll disagree now. And the reason for that is um um because we're seeing this so often that it's it's kind of uh we're used to it now 
Mm. Um, and uh, not to say that we're we're immune to hearing such news now. Of course, it every time it still shocks us and it and it and it and it, and it breaks your core mm. uh, to even think about such a thing. A person in position uh, doing such things and abusing their power, and and the individual he was taking selfies in his uniform, um, and and things of that sort as well. I mean, it's it's disgusting to say the least. Yeah. Uh, but unfortunately, we see it time and time again now, and it's and it's becoming so much of the norm, and it's just it's 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 appalling. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so so I I I, I don't I, I don't get shocked anymore uh, in in the sense that oh this is news or this is the first time this such a thing has happened. Uh, but but yeah, it, it it does break your heart when you when you hear such things. But. Uh, but but yeah, that's uh, I mean something really needs to be done to 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 tackle this issue in which we're seeing so many uh, crimes being done, especially by people in in, in position as well. I mean, most of the t- uh, Tuesday's papers today are talking about Mr. Zahawi and how um, he's f- uh, facing the sack as well because of uh, what he's potentially done, uh, and the ethics reviews are happening as well and taking place. Uh, so I mean, yeah, wh- whether it's uh, in regards to um, not being being honest um, or, mm. or or abusing your power in a different way, this is there's something which uh, needs to be tackled, um, and yeah, this this issue needs to be looked at. Yeah, and even even this these to solve issues when we <coughs> sorry excuse me when we look at Islam, we find that it has the answer to almost every single, if not uh, every single issue actually, and not not almost all every single issue. And uh, with especially this, uh, we have a, a, a narration of the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. He said that each person, <coughs> sorry, he said that each person who is in position will be asked about his deeds. Hmm. So where, wherever position you may be, if you are, uh, um, if you have uh, subordinates uh, under you, or uh, you would always be asked. So you should always make sure that you are treating them with respect. And uh, do not harm them in any way. Yeah, you'll, you'll always be. you at the end. You'll be asked for your deeds that you did. Exactly. And I believe, uh, if not that narration, then in another narration, the Holy Prophet Muhammad, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. The way he explained it was that he said that each one of us uh, is a shepherd, and we are to look after our flock. Yeah. Um, and uh, and of course, uh, if we if we talk uh, if we think about it in a literal sense. That that doesn't make sense. Not not every one of us um, uh, work on the farms, and not not uh, uh, all of us are shepherds either. But uh, if we actually think about what he meant over there, uh, what he said and what he meant over there is that whatever position you are in, whether you are a let's say a child and you're you're mm. undergoing your studies, mm. maybe your your flock uh, in in that in that terminology would be to look after your studies. Uh, you might be uh, a mother, and and you you might not work. You might be at the uh, um, just looking after the household uh, things, uh, looking after the upbringing of the children and other such things. That would be her flock. Mm. For yeah. for the father, uh, Islamically especially, we we are told that the men are the the breadwinners of the house, and they need to look after um, all of the the finances and the monetary uh, things when it comes to the household. Mm. So his flock would be to look after the the the, 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 the those things. Yeah. The money and everything uh, which is for the family exactly yeah. um, and then whatever scope you look at whether it's a teacher his flock could, or 
her flock can be the students, whether it's a businessman, all of these things. I mean, the, you can go on and on, and mm. and 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 it's uh, it's it's limitless, and yeah, it just shows got, us. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, go on, carry on. Sorry. Yeah, no, no. Yeah, yeah, I was just gonna say that it just shows us that whoever we are, however small you may think think yourself to be. Um, we're, in our circles, we have this responsibility, yeah. um, and we are to look after everything or everyone which comes under our rule. Yeah, exactly. That's the word I was going to use: responsibility. Mm. Uh, everyone, we've all got responsibilities. Um, you know, the more we think about it, is uh, is better for us because uh, some people might just brush it off, thinking that it's not a responsibility. Mm-hmm. But even something like this, for you gave the example of a child who's going to school, his responsibility will be his education. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that's uh, it's quite important to look after. Yeah, and no, to no, remember. most certainly, most certainly. Um, uh, was there any other news uh, which uh, which which you guys found uh, interesting, or uh, even from within the articles, or maybe um, from the front pages as well? Yeah, there is one piece of article which uh, caught my eye this morning, and um, this uh, article is by Sarah Butler. And um, it's as usual, you know, we are going through a lot of um, uh, economical crisis and um, inflation is happening and the poor is getting more poor and the richer is getting more, you know, richer and richer and wealthy. So um, this article, which is by Sarah Butler, the article goes by like this. The UK's least affluent households have almost £40 a month less spare cash. Mm. than they did a year ago while the richest have gained a similar sum in the same period. So according to the figures exposing how inflation has hit the poorest the hardest, the wealthiest 20% of the households had £36 a month more in discriminatory (coughs) income in December compared with a year before, as enjoined record earning uh, growth which offset rising energy and food bills, Analyst at Retail Economics found the differing uh, fortune recorded uh, on its cost of living tracker reflect a higher rate of inflation of 16.5% for those at the bottom end of the income scale, who spend two-thirds of their income on essentials such as food and energy compared with 13.3% for those at the top, who spent just half under uh, Richard Liam, uh, the chief uh, executive of Retail Economics, said there continues to be an uneven impact across affluence groups and the wealthiest are actually seeing their discretionary spending power rise on the back of record earnings growth, while the least affluent see their spare cash eroded by inflation. This will play out uh, differently across the market with many trading down, delaying expenditure where possible and cancelling some purchases to altogether. Meanwhile, luxury spending is likely to remain more isolated from the impact, leaving mid-tier retailers particularly exposed. In inflation on the most basic of those need can be, uh, needs can be higher than the average with the consumers reliant on supermarkets budget ranges bearing the brunt of, uh, brunt of food uh, price inflation in the run-up uh, to Christmas, for example. Overall food prices, um, overall food price inflation averaged um, 13.3% as I've said before in December according to the British Retail um, 
latest figures. So people are, you know, struggling um, in in the in the crisis in this crisis moment. Uh, we are going through a lot, um, you know, and uh, I, I think almost we hit the ten percent inflation rate um, uh, so far. I think so. Yeah, just over. I think it was ten point eight, maybe. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah. So that's the thing we are which we are going through, and uh, you know we always find that uh, Islam always gives uh, the beautiful uh, teachings as well. Uh, Islam has you know um, has um, uh, brought such a system uh, like zakat, mm. um, uh, so that you know uh, the balance uh, it keeps a balance between yeah. rich and poor <coughs> as well. So yeah, that's the news which I have got. Uh, so far, mm-hmm. yep. Okay, very interesting. Uh, was there anything that you wanted to share as well, uh, before yeah, we so move on to the first uh, main segment for the day? Yeah. So just a quick one. I saw one article on BBC. Um, it's a uh, so quote unquote. It's uh, racism makes it harder for me to rent a place uh, for me to find a place to rent. Um, you know, I just I uh, I went over this and I saw um, that you know in this day and age where um, First of all, renting a place is quite difficult uh, due to uh, price, mm-hmm. and uh, fine, and uh, you're not you you wouldn't want to really uh, you wouldn't want your race to do with anything where you would where you would live. You wouldn't want people to um, you know it, it, you wouldn't want it to be hard for you to find a place. But unfortunately, that's a harsh reality, and uh, um, I think. If the world, uh, just on this article, if the world had uh, knows the teachings of Islam, mm. it's uh, that you know um, the Holy Prophet uh, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Uh, you know, on one occasion, um, you know, during his uh, farewell sermon, he said that you know an Arab has no superiority over a non-Arab, and uh, a non-Arab has no superiority over an Arab, uh, and he said that a white has no superiority over a black, nor does a black have a superiority over a white and you know so he completely eliminated uh, racism and uh, you know it's quite sad to see that you know uh, with the teachings of Islam uh, you know if people could if people heed to the teachings of Islam if they uh, recognize the teachings of Islam the beautiful teachings of Islam then such things would not be faced in our society today yeah yeah no, no, most so certainly true. and uh, we need to remember as well that the Arabs were such a uh, such a people who, who took pride um, in their in their castes, mm. in their in their skin tone, in in themselves, yeah. um, a very uh, prideful people, and uh, still the Holy Prophet Muhammad, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, he managed to change their mindset. Mm. I mean, we need to remember that when he came, the the people at that time, they they you couldn't even call them humans; they were barbaric. Mm. Um, uh, over the smallest things, they would start wars. Mm. Uh, they, they they would kill uh, each other, and then the families would they will last continue for years. on continue yeah. on that that bloodshed for for years and years on end. Um, and so the Holy Prophet Muhammad, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, he came at that time. He changed these barbaric people into humans, mm. and then he didn't stop there. But rather, he he. Changed those humans into godlike humans, mm. uh, servants of that gracious God, right? And it's such a beautiful uh, change that we see within that time that during such a short period of time, he managed to change the hearts of people. Yeah. Uh, not simply just t- teaching them something and saying that, oh, this is right, this is wrong, this is what you should do, this is what you should refrain from. 
Um, no, it wasn't. It wasn't as simple as that. But rather, he he molded the hearts in such a beautiful way that uh, uh, we, we can see the, the 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 changes that those people, those individuals, underwent. Um, and with that, um, they they became closer, and or well, not just closer, close to mm. God Almighty as well. And that is uh, the beauty of the teachings of Islam. Yeah. Um, um, moving on now to our first segment for the day, just uh, as a reminder for you, we are talking um, about in this hour, we're going to be addressing the uh, International Day of Education. Um, in the second hour, we'll be discussing um, a remarkable discovery of an entire new layer of brain tissue. And last but not least, uh, we'll be discussing artificial pancreas for diabetic patients. Is this the way forward? <clears throat> uh, remember, this is your radio station and we do love for you to get involved. So if you do have an opinion on any one of these topics, remember you can uh, pick up the phone and give us a call. 0208-687-7878. Um, if, you, if you are a bit shy and you don't want your voice to be heard, then you can always tweet us or leave your comments on our Instagram page as well at Voice of Islam UK. Um, so just getting straight into this first topic, really, celebrating International Day of Education. So education, of course, is a human right. And on Tuesday, the 24th of January, which is, of course, today, we are celebrating the International Day of Education. Through this day, we endeavor to highlight the importance of education and how it can quite literally shape futures. It is a light to ending the vicious cycle of poverty and its impact in uh, wide-reaching, transforming not only the lives of individuals, but rather nations and countries. So, Daniel, I mean, if when we're talking about this, uh, of course, the first question that comes to mind automatically is what the theme for this year is. Every every year there there is a different theme, and as we as we mentioned, today is the International Day of Education. So, what is the theme for this year, and why is it important that we actually celebrate this uh, this day, the International Day of Education? Yeah. So, as you have told that we, today we are celebrating um, this this day. And the theme of um, this uh, the day of education is to invest in people and prioritize education. And this is the fifth international day of education. So the building on the global momentum generated by the UN Transforming Education Summit in September 2022, uh, this year's day will call for maintaining strong political mobilization around education and chart the way to translate commitments and global initiatives into action. Education must, you know, must be prioritized to celebrate progress towards all this uh, sustainable development goals against the backdrop of a global recession, uh, growing inequalities and the climate uh, crisis. Um, Education, which is certainly is a human right, um, a public good and a public responsibility. Um, as we also know that uh, the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, he himself said that it is the responsibility of each and every Muslim uh, to gain knowledge and to seek knowledge. So uh, that's why, you know, we can understand uh, the importance of education as well. So uh, that is why it is uh, right. It is a basic human right of mm. each individual. 
uh, without inclusive and uh, you know equitable and quality education and lifelong opportunities for all uh, countries uh, will not succeed in achieving gender equality and breaking the cycle of uh, poverty so that is leaving millions of children uh, youth and adults uh, behind mm. Uh, just what you said about the hadith, uh, the, the narration of the Prophet Muhammad, peace yeah. and blessings will be upon him. Um, <coughs> sorry. Uh, there's another hadith also, there's another narration where he says that even if you have to you know, travel to um, China that to seek knowledge, in the pursuit of knowledge, then you should do so. Uh, you know, if, you, if one ponders on this um, narration, they would see that uh, at that time, uh, traveling... Uh, was difficult. They didn't. They didn't have the means yeah. um, that we have today, like cars, trains, uh, planes. Even traveling within Arabia was difficult. Yeah. I mean, um, in this day and age, to travel from let's say Mecca to Medina, yeah. it's it will take a couple of hours by train. But uh, in 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 the Holy Prophet's time, it was it took a couple of days. Yeah, they mostly used to travel by camels. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, so you know, so when the Holy Prophet says that even if you have to travel to China. Uh, in the pursuit of education, then you know you should do so. Yeah, most certainly, and it, it just it just goes to show the importance of the acquisition of knowledge, isn't it? I mean, yeah. if the Holy Prophet Muhammad may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, he is illustrating how important it is, uh, and 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 he is saying that even if you have to go all the way across the world, um, which like like you said, it's not something which would, uh, I mean, now it can happen within a day, right? Mm. You, you can go to 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 Asia, South Asia, um, um, uh, or, or any part of the world, pretty much in within a day. Mm. Um, but at that time, it was such a strenuous time. It would take months uh, or even a, a year, maybe. Yeah. Um, and uh, remember, the mo- the mode of transport at that time was just camels and horses. Mm. Um, but 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 yeah, at that time, for someone to say such a thing, um, it just it just it shows the importance that Islam has laid down on the acquisition of knowledge. Um, if we go to chapter thirty nine of the Holy Quran, verse ten. Allah the Almighty says, Say, are those who know equal to those who know not? And and of course, this verse of the Holy Quran clearly highlights the elevated status of education and those who gain knowledge in the eyes of Allah the Almighty. There is another narration of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, in which he said that the word of wisdom is the lost property of a Muslim, so that wherever he finds it, he should take it as he is most entitled to it. Um, and uh, uh, we were speaking with uh, Professor Dylan William yesterday as well, and we will listen to that uh, pre-recorded uh, interview in just a short while as well. But even in that, we we were discussing that uh, you are never too old to uh, acquire knowledge. We should never feel as if um, oh, you have gone past a certain stage of your life or a certain age, and so now oh, you're you're too old to learn anything. Or you're, or in a boastful way in which you you feel as as if oh I'm so old now I I know everything there's nothing more that I can learn of course not I mean we can see from the from the verses of the Holy Quran that we learn from the cradle to the grave um, and this is something that we should all always keep in mind that you you might feel as if uh, some things might get harder to learn like for instance if you want to learn maybe a new language. 
uh, obviously, the 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 more you grow older, the more difficult it will become to actually do such a thing. But even that, we can see that so many uh, uh, people who are much older in age as well um, do pick up a new language and and become quite fluent in it uh, as well. Hmm. Um, so there's there's nothing that we should be uh, that, there's nothing that should be stopping us from this. We should always uh, be ready to pick up any kind of uh, information that we see. Um, whether it's uh, through speaking with our our colleagues and our peers and our friends and our family members, whether it's uh, um, reading, uh, whether it's through watching something, mm. whatever it is, whenever we find something which is uh, educational, we should always pick that up, grasp it with both hands. And uh, and that is exactly what the Holy Prophet Muhammad meant uh, through yeah. this narration. Yeah, we should always be in a process of learning. Um, even in the Holy Quran, we have a uh, there is a verse where we are told um, it's Rabbi Zidni Ilma that Oh my Lord, increase me in my knowledge, and this is a prayer that has been recorded in the Holy Quran, and it's important to understand that God Almighty He uh, and Islam it's, uh, as well, uh, and in the Holy Quran we see countless of verses where we are told to ponder over the creation of the universe, ponder over um, you know uh, um, uh, matters. <coughs> Sorry over matters and you know keep uh you know uh, keep the uh, process of learning ongoing you know um it's not a uh, it's not something that you know the goal in islam is not to become you know a scholar yeah. it's uh you know to continue learning is uh you know we, there are two benefits one is that you will benefit yourself when you learn various things you will benefit yourself you'll learn new things and secondly which is uh, which i would i would say is even more important is that you can benefit others as well through your knowledge um, as we will go on to see in our other topics that we have today, uh, yeah. where we have research and uh, new research and uh, new um, uh, things related to health, uh, you know, it all it all uh, comes from first learning, first it comes from education, pursuing education, and then passing that education on to society. Most certainly, most mm-hmm. certainly. And this reminds me of a verse of the Holy Quran, chapter three, verse one hundred and eleven, in which Allah the Almighty has stated that you. Uh, are the best people who are raised for the good of mankind. And he he goes on to say the reasons why as well. And he says that uh, because you forbid that which is evil and you enjoin that which is good and Mm. you believe in Allah the Almighty. Mm. And just just in regards to these first two uh, categories that I've mentioned uh, from that verse of the Holy Quran, we can see that it's, it's simply not enough for us to be good ourselves. It's not enough for us to, let's say, embrace Islam and go through um, whatever uh, customs or whatever um, Islam teaches us. But rather, uh, we we are only uh, the best people raised for the good of mankind, uh, and that is from the verse uh, quoted as well. Um, uh, if we uh, enjoin that which is good to other people, and if we forbid people from evil as well. And similarly, when we talk about knowledge as well, when we learn, it is up to us to embark that knowledge upon other people as well. Uh, there's a narration of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, which is uh, uh, specifying in particular about the uh, about the Holy Quran, and he said that the best person is he who learns the Quran and teaches it. Yeah, it's not he doesn't just stop there for 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 such a person who reads the Quran and and keeps on reading it and learns about it. And no, hmm. he says the best person is he who learns the Quran and teaches it. Yeah, and and this I think beautifully summarizes um, the importance of the acquisition of knowledge. 
um, and also um, doing good to others as well and embarking that knowledge upon other people. Mm-hmm. Um, Danielle, how can global education be advocated, especially in places where people may be prevented from accessing it or there may even be a lack of facilities to open schools, etc.? Yeah, just before, you know, entering into this, uh, I would like to, you know, um, uh, just got a couple of examples uh, mm-hmm. re- recalled. And um, it's really beautiful that, you know, the first revelation which uh, the uh, Holy Prophet, may peace and blessing Allah be upon him, received was regarding the education as well. Exactly. Uh, read in the name of thy Lord who yeah. created. So, you know, this uh, this beautifies the whole thing as well. And uh, we can also see throughout the life of the Holy Prophet, um, uh, may peace and blessing of Allah be upon him, that uh, may, there are many, many examples uh, where he, you know, uh, emphasized upon, uh, stressed upon the education. And uh, even after after the Battle of Badr, which was the first battle, mm-hmm. uh, you know, when Ransom was asked by the, by the prisoners, you know, uh, they were asked to um, read and write uh, to to the people or to the to the Muslims. Yeah. Uh, as a result, to, they to can teach them to read. Yeah, and write, to teach it? them. Yeah. yeah. So as a result, they can get the freedom. So you know, there are many examples which uh, which we can find throughout the life of the Holy Prophet, and it um, it tells us that how much um, importance of education lies, you know, yeah. uh, in in Islam. And um, before that, I, I you know, uh, in a beautiful um, uh, quote by Nelson Mandela, uh, which I just read. And it says that education is the most uh, powerful weapon which you can use to change the world. Yeah. And so if you can repeat your question again, which you oh, asked yeah, no, before. No, yeah, yeah, sorry. Uh, no, no, but beautifully mentioned the things that you, you said. And, and we can see that uh, education really is key, isn't it? It's the most important thing um, when it comes to doing anything, when it comes to combating uh, any uh, evil. Education is the thing which will uh, help us prevail. Um, but yeah, the question that I was asking was, how can global education be advocated, especially uh, in areas in which people may be prevented from accessing it, or there might even be a lack of facilities to open schools, uh, and lack of facilities can be things like uh, computers and uh, other such technological advancements. So yeah, regarding um, education, um, UNESCO's event in uh, New York will take forward national commitments and global initiatives and step up public engagement in favor of education as the path to peace. Sustainable development and individual and collective well-being while uh, providing youth with a platform to present their initiatives and innovations uh, to advance the right uh, to education. It will also highlight, uh, you know, one of the most challenging crises of our time in Afghanistan um, where girls and women are deprived of their fundamental right uh, to education. And I think there are many, many other parts of the world where, uh, especially, uh, especially in, you know, in Africa, in underprivileged uh, countries um, where, you know, uh, people don't have the facility uh, to uh, the basic necessities, basic um, uh, education, the, they don't have the facility to provide basic education. So there are many other parts of the world where people are being deprived of the basic education as well. Yeah. 
So since the political shift in, uh, as, uh, as uh, I was talking about the specifically Afghanistan, so since the political shift in Kabul in August, August 2021, uh, access to education beyond primary level is indefinitely suspended for all Afghan girls above the age of 12. It will also include the launch of first SDG for benchmark um, uh, publication by UNESCO's Global Education Monitoring Report and Institute for Statistics, which monitors uh, country progress toward uh, the benchmark, including those discussed at the Transforming Education Summit. Mm. Uh, so you mentioned uh, you mentioned Afghanistan. It just reminded me that um, on the UNESCO website, uh, it says that UNESCO is dedicated this year's International Day to girls and women in Afghanistan who have been deprived of their right to education. And um, you know, I think uh, Voice of Islam spoke about this uh, two weeks ago as well. Um, that yeah. the news of uh, about women in Afghanistan being denied the right um, to education comes as a shock. You know, as I'm sure it does to all Muslims around the world and all people for a country that's uh, population is almost entirely Muslim um, you know I mean this should not be the case because uh, as we have uh, already sp- uh, t- talked about that the emphasis Islam gives on a pursuit of education um, you know it's uh, it's extremely important that we you know pursue education um, the Muslim identity uh, is hit, uh, is uh, is rich uh, in examples uh of uh, you know pursuing education, and both we see both men and women yeah. in Islam who you know uh, spend their entire lives in the acquisition of knowledge. In fact, it was um, a Muslim woman, uh, Fatima Al Fihri, yeah. who founded the world's uh, oldest existing university. Yeah. So I mean, this goes to show that education isn't just for you know it's not just for uh, men. I mean, it's it's more for it's it's for both. It's men and women. Yeah. Uh, women being the backbone of society because they will obviously, you know, they women raise our children and uh, educated mothers will naturally mean that the children who are born will also be educated. The children who are educated will will naturally mean that the society will will uh, be educated and obviously the country as well will prosper. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, most certainly. Yes. Um, we we spoke with uh, D- uh, Professor Daniel w- uh, Dylan Willem, uh, Williams sorry, uh, yesterday, and uh, we'll be listening to that interview now. He is uh, an emeritus uh, emeritus professor of educational uh, assessment at University College London. In a, a varied career, he has taught uh, in inner city schools, directed a large scale t- testing program, served a number of roles in university administration, including dean of a school of education, and pursued a research program focused on supporting teachers to develop their use of assessment in support of learning. Assalamualaikum, peace be upon you. Good afternoon and welcome to The Breakfast Show, Professor Dylan Williams. Hi there. Hi there. Um, we're talking about um, a very interesting topic today uh, and a very important topic as well, which is celebrating International Day of Education. Um, and the first question that we wanted to ask you in this regard was, is education necessary to have a successful and happy life. What are your views on this? Well, I think my views are much less important than the research evidence. The research evidence we've got suggests that there's no doubt that being more educated makes you happier, helps you live a longer life, have less disability towards the end of your life. But it doesn't mean that that's essential. So there are many people with very low levels of education who have very happy, very fulfilled and flourishing lives. So I think the, the research evidence is 
It's not absolutely necessary, but it certainly helps. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and, and obviously, education uh, usually has a huge part to play with one's uh, uh, financial uh, means as well, how, how well someone is. And we, can, we oftentimes we see how content people with, the, with far less are there as opposed to those people with so much more. Um, but again, that's, uh, that's another discussion to, to have on another day. Um, Professor William, education plays a key factor in reducing poverty, especially in developing countries. How does education allow them to break out of this cycle of poverty? Well, I think the key thing here is we have to move away from thinking about education as a formal process and focus instead on learning. So in many countries, they have education systems that claim to deliver something like nine years of basic education. But the question for me is, how much are the students learning in the school? So there are some education systems that actually don't equip young people with the skills of reading or being able to do basic calculations. So I think, as Lant Pritchard, a researcher, points out, schooling ain't learning. We have to move the, the focus away from how much time students are spending in school and towards how much they're increasing their skills, their abilities, and, and, and then education can make a, a radical uh, impact on life outcomes for young people. Mm-hmm. Of course, of course. I mean, we see, especially in this day and age uh, in which we've advanced so much uh, technologically, uh, where we see these uh, entrepreneurs and these social media influencers who maybe with uh, not the greatest amount of uh, education or formal education, I should say, um, but yet they're, they're still so successful. And the reason is, like you mentioned, it's not about going to school and seeking education from there, but it's all about the skill sets. Um, that you learn uh, whilst growing up as well. Um, if we if we don't uh, go and learn and, and seek this formal education, um, how else or where else do you think we can learn these skills from? Well, I think I would like to see school systems around the world focusing on the outcomes of the education system rather than the inputs, like numbers of years of schooling. So I think we need to make sure that students in schools are benefiting from that. But of course, what, we're, what we are seeing now with the advent of um, online tuition is that students anywhere in the world with reasonable internet access can access some of the best teaching in the world. So Stanford University has made its online course available worldwide. Uh, a course developed by Sebastian Thrun on um, artificial intelligence. So the fact is that students who are self-starters, students who are keen to improve their skills, can find incredible amounts of information available freely, provided you've got internet access. And so that, I think, is a really positive development. Now you don't have to be physically near an expert to benefit from their wisdom. Most certainly, most certainly. I mean, uh, that is a, a huge bonus that we can see, isn't it? We can, anything that you want to know, you, I, I mean, we're talking about education today, um, but even if it's something um, which is maybe how to, I don't know, tie a, uh, tie, a tie a knot or a, or a tie even, um, or, or even how to change the wheels in your car or how to pick the puncture. I mean, all of these things, um, you, usually we would sort of learn that growing up with our fathers or whatever. But uh, because of YouTube and because of these other social media outlets, there's so much that we can learn um, and so many skills uh, that we can learn from, from simply just uh, a few uh, taps on our, on our uh, screens. 
Um, Professor William, many parents uh, hesitate to send their children to school in low-income countries. Um, what can be done to, to overcome this challenge, do you think? Well, I think, first of all, we should start from a principle of charity. If parents are refusing to send their children to school, let's find out why. So it could be that the parents need the children at home to fetch water, to tend crops, to look after animals. So often those decisions by the parents are the best decisions they can make. So I think we have to, be, we have to think about this as something that we need to work with rather than saying these terrible parents are not sending their children to school. The second thing is to make sure that schools are worth attending. So as I said earlier, there's a lot of evidence that in many countries, children don't benefit much by going to school. And so that, I think, is a real issue. We're seeing a steady rise in private, low-cost schools in Kenya, in India, and other uh, countries where parents are choosing to spend some extra money. They ignore the government-provided schools and pay a little bit of extra money to get an education that they see as being superior. So I think that the starting point for addressing this issue is let's assume that the parents have good reasons for their behavior and start from where they are rather than just saying we must pass laws to say that all parents must send their children to school. I don't think that's a very productive way of addressing the issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, no, I completely agree. I completely agree. That's uh, uh, very uh, um, interesting as well, an interesting take that when, when people or when parents are not sending their, their children to school, there's, there's probably some reasoning behind that, and that is that they might need to do other such things, like, for instance, um, fetch water and um, help uh, around the household and other such things as well. And um, you, you must have heard as well, um, since uh, August um, in, uh, in, in, in Afghanistan, the Taliban have banned uh, girls from, uh, from attending schools as well. And then people have sent different messages. There's Asia who sent a picture and a message saying that um, to the world that she used to be holding a pen and book and now she's holding a broom, um, which she sees as a symbol of uh, hopelessness. Um, what would your answer to that be? I know, uh, obviously, what you mentioned earlier is, is in regards to the parents, their decision of whether or not they can send or they should send their, their children to school. But in some countries like this, in which we can see that uh, girls are being banned outright uh, from, from going to school, what, how should they cope? Or how could, um, what sort of message would you give them in which they can see some kind of uh, um, a ray of hope, uh, if you may? Well, I'm afraid that's way beyond uh, my capabilities and expertise. You know, these are political issues rather than educational issues. I can advise about, um, you know, how do we get children thriving in school? But when a government makes a rule that says that girls should not be educated, that to me is not an educational problem. It's a political problem. and I'm not a political yeah. science expert. Okay, okay. Um, also, you, uh, you, you were talking about uh, in the earlier question uh, in regards to from, from wherever we might be, we can access uh, the best uh, education through uh, uh, the technological advancements that we've seen. During the pandemic, uh, many classes were moved to online sessions. Do you think teaching has the same impact uh, as in-person classrooms? And, and what's your uh, reasoning behind that as well? I think the evidence from the countries that have bothered to research this is that in general, online education was much less effective than in-person education. But what's interesting to me is how different the impact was. So in England, for example, students did fall back 
uh, students from rich homes fell back less than students from less advantaged homes. But the extent was about three months of lost learning uh, per year for, for the most disadvantaged students. In America, it seems to be more like six months. And I'm, I have no idea why it is. Oh. The impact of shifting away from in-person to online learning was so much worse in America. I, I just don't understand that. The other thing to say is, you know, there's an old proverb, it's an ill wind that blows no good. And I think there were some children who actually quite liked online learning because they could stop watching the video and rewind it and watch it again. They could actually yeah. learn more by pausing the teaching so they could actually think about this, which you can't do in a real-life classroom. So I, I think we, should, we shouldn't say it was all terrible. There were some positives, but the overall net effect was definitely very harmful to a lot of, of children. And I think we're still struggling to figure out any ways we can address this issue. My guess is that the students who went through COVID and were home, you know, at home for three or four months or even longer will be less educated uh, pretty permanently. And I don't know how we're going to cope with that. I mean, that, that, that is a very interesting, uh, um, the, the, the research which is done on that, of course, is very interesting. And, and, and I hope and pray that they, they uh, like what you mentioned right there towards the end as well, that they, they, they it's not a permanent thing, but rather it's something that they, they can overcome. But of course, like you said, it is a, it is a difficult thing. So, but we are, we are hopeful for that. And lastly, Professor William, uh, what message would you like to share uh, with our listeners uh, on this year's International Education Day? If somebody claimed they had a drug that does what education does, nobody would believe them. It makes people happier. It makes people healthier. It makes people behave better towards their neighbors and their colleagues. It makes them more pro-social. It helps them live longer. It makes them more productive in the workplace. So actually, you know, education is, is a miracle drug. And we should do everything we can to make sure that everybody gets a really good education, not just measured in terms of years of schooling, but in terms of developing skills, but more importantly, keeping the passion for learning alive. Every four-year-old arrives in education, for, in some countries at six or seven, but they arrive hungry for knowledge and information. They have a passion for learning. And too often in our school systems, we eradicate that passion. We need students leaving school at 18 with the same passion for learning that they had when they arrived at the age of four. And I think that's the important point. Most of what they need for the rest of their lives hasn't been discovered or invented yet. So if our students leave us with a desire for knowledge extinguished, no matter how much we teach them, we will have failed them. We have to make sure that our students leave us ready to carry on learning for the rest of their lives. Yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't agree more beautifully said there. Um, I mean, even even in the Holy Quran, we, we are told that we learn from the cradle to the grave. Uh, you're never too old to, to learn anything. I mean, we're always learning and learning and learning. Um, and, and you're very right over there in, in, in your statement in which you said that um, when, when you leave your formal uh, education, then it shouldn't just be that, oh, you pack your bags and then that's it. Of course, that thirst, uh, that, that, that hunger that you have for, for, for acquiring, uh, acquiring more and more knowledge should very much still be as alive as it was from the day that you enter uh, nursery or kindergarten or, or, or reception or school as well. 
um, beautifully put there uh, and, and very eloquently mentioned as well. Uh, thank you, uh, Professor Dylan uh, William, for being with us, for answering our questions and sharing your insight uh, into this very important topic. Thank you once again. You're most welcome. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text as this is a recording. And lines are now closed. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Welcome back to The Breakfast Show here on the Voice of Islam radio station, where we are now going to be discussing our second topic for the day. Um, and that is in regards to a remarkable discovery of an entire new layer of brain tissue. Um, if you are just tuning in, we were talking about uh, celebrating International Day of Education. Today is the 24th of January 2023, and that marks the International Day of Education. Sorry. Um, and right before taking on uh, the news, we were speaking, uh, or we, we spoke to him uh, yesterday, but the, the pre-recorded uh, interview was being um, shared live uh, with Dylan w- uh, William, who is an emeritus um, professor of education assessment at University College London. Uh, in a varied career, he has taught in inner city schools, uh, directed a large-scale testing program, served a number of roles in university administration, including dean of school of education and pursued a research program focused on supporting teachers to develop their use of assessment in support of learning. Um, And that was the first segment for the day. uh, Like I said, if you are just tuning in and you would like to listen back to that, then uh, once this goes up on our SoundCloud, you can listen back to it at www.voiceofislam.co.uk. But for now, we are going to be discussing our second main topic for the day, remarkable discovery of an entire new layer of brain tissue and last but not least we will be discussing an artificial pancreas for diabetic patients um, and we'll be asking of uh, whether or not this is the way forward um So no matter how much you try to explore the enigmatic realm of the brain there's always much more waiting to be discovered in this segment, we'll be discussing the discovery of a new anatomic uh, structure within the brain, which contributes to the efficient flow of the, cerebrospe- uh, uh, the cerebrospinal fluid, the uh, CSF, which is uh, the newly discovered membrane uh, and is currently called uh, SLYM, the subarachnoidal uh, lymphatic-like uh, membrane. Um, and researchers describe a previously unknown component of brain anatomy that acts as both a protective barrier and a platform from which immune cells survey the brain for infection and inflammation as well. Uh, before we talk about what Islam teaches us in this regard and, and continue on with the with the theme of the pursuit and the acquisition of knowledge, um, Daniel, how does the discovery of this uh, anatomical structure help with our understanding of the brain and its, uh, its functions as well? Um, so advances in neuroimaging and molecular biology have only recently enabled scientists to study the living brain at level of detail known, not previously achievable, <coughs> unlocking many of its mysteries. The discovery of a new anatomic structure that segregates and helps control the flow of cerebrospinal fluid, uh, CSF, in and around the brain now provides us much greater appreciation of the sophisticated role that CSF um, plays not only in transporting and removing waste um, from the brain, but also in supporting its immune defenses. 
Sad Nedegard, Mekin Nedegard, co-director of the Center of for Translational Neuromedicine at University of Rochester and the University of Copenhagen, and a Danish professor, Molgard, um, MD uh, professor of neuroanatomy at the University <coughs> of Copenhagen. So, like this, you know, uh, um, it may be uh, a question may be asked that how many abnormalities in the newly discovered brain tissue trigger or you know worsen conditions um, such as um, multiple um, uh, sclerosis and Alzheimer diseases. So, you know, Jalis, what do you think about this? Yeah. So, um, you know, like we mentioned in the beginning, you know, the, there's always much more waiting to be discovered and you know the uh, um, <clears throat> the brain is uh, such an organ which you know it's it's uh, complex in nature uh, you know and the more one researches in it the more one finds that the our creation uh, is uh, quite complex it's not something easy to understand so um, discovery of the SLYM it, um, in fact opens the door for further study of its role in uh, brain disease uh, for example, uh, researchers note that um, the larger and more diverse uh, concentrations of immune cells congregate on the membrane during inflammation and aging. Uh, so, you know, when the membrane was uh, ruptured during traumatic brain injury, the resulting uh, disruption in the flow of uh, CSF impaired the glymphatic system and allowed non-central nervous systems, immune cells, to enter the brain. Um, these and uh, similar observations suggest that diseases as diverse as multiple sclerosis, central nervous system uh, infections, and Alzheimer's might be triggered or worsened by abnormalities in SLYM function. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, you know, they they also suggest that the delivery of drugs and gene therap uh, therapeutics to the brain may be impacted by SLYM function, which will need to uh, be considered as a new generations of biologic uh, biologic therapies and bring um, developed uh, uh, being developed. Mm -hmm. So it's very interesting, isn't it? How um, so many of these things are linked together. Um, and the more we understand about one thing, the better we are able to tackle the things which surround it, the things which are around it. And that is the beauty of, um, of uh, again, the acquisition of knowledge, isn't it? Mm. Because when we, when we talk about the acquisition of knowledge and when we uh, learn more and more about these things, we are able to tackle uh, such issues in a far better manner as well. Um, and in this regard, uh, we'll be we'll be continuing on with this topic, of course, um, and speaking a little bit more about it. But before we do so, uh, we do have with us on the line Dr. Felix Ralph Michael Beinlich, um, who has studied biology at the University uh, of uh, Osnabrück. Uh, I might be pronouncing that wrong, in Germany, and got a PhD from the University of Dusseldorf while working at the uh, research center in Tulich uh, on the mechanisms of uh, synaptic 
vesicle uh, acidification. After his PhD, he moved to Denmark, where he now works as postdoc in the, in the Center for Translational Neuromedicine at the University of Copenhagen. Dr. Felix's research strongly focuses on brain physiology and fluorescent uh, microsc- uh, uh, microscopy uh, methods to visualize, uh, for example, um, uh, ion and, uh, and ion uh, concentrations or neurotransmitter activity in living mice. Um, Assalamualaikum, peace be upon you. Good morning and welcome to The Breakfast Show. Hi, good morning. Thank you very much for the invitation. You're very welcome and thank you for for, for joining us today. Um, As you know, we're speaking about a very interesting topic, a remarkable uh, discovery of an entire new layer of brain tissue. Um, And we have uh, touched on um, uh, this this theme and this topic and and mentioned uh, a few difficult words which uh, maybe uh, some of our listeners may be unfamiliar with. Um, So just beginning with CSF, what is cerebrospinal (laughs) fluid? Cerebrospinal fluid. Yes, so CSF is um, basically the fluid you have in the brain. So considering that the brain consists of like 80% of water, mm-hmm. and we have a, like, I mean, there are many cells, but there's a lot of space in between the cells. So you have, so you have basically two compartments of fluid. So you have the interstitial fluid. This is the fluid which is between the, um, yeah, the cells itself, and the CSF, which is... Um, yeah, covering all the fluid, which is between the, we call it perivascular spaces. This is like between the blood vessels going through the brain. And also, um, if you look between the, yeah, the skull and the, uh, the brain tissue, they also have, um, CSF, um, floating around, uh, not floating around, but they're accumulating. Um, and it's, its main function is actually to, to cushion from injury. Mm-hmm. To provide nutrients and also to to clean the brain from metabolic waste. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the second question would be, um, you know, what is the importance of the <coughs> sorry, excuse me, uh, what is the importance of the um, arachnoid layer and the uh, subarachnoid space? So the um, arachnoid layer is one of the uh, meninges. So we have the the dura mater on top and the arachnoid layer. And then the new found slim membrane, and then the PR mater, and then the, the brain tissue is coming. And uh, the arachnoid layer, and below that subarachnoid space is basically, um, yeah, it's, it's covering the brain, the dura and the skull from the brain tissue, and it's mm-hmm. filled with CSF. And um, as I mentioned before, it's a very important area because since it's filled with CSF, it's, it's kind of a cushion from injury by mechanical insult. For example, if you do a, in football, if you do a header, you get a, like a mechanical insult on the, on the skull. Mm. And um, if you would not have CSF, the brain tissue would directly like crash against the skull and lead to, to yeah, fatal damage, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, very interesting. Um, Dr. Felix, um, what is the glymphatic system and how does it relate to the brain and current research? So the brain, uh, the glymphatic system is basically the metabolic clearance pathway of the brain. So um, all the other organs in the brain, they usually are connected to the lymphatic system or they have lymphatic vessels, which is the pathway of clearance of, of metabolic waste or excessive uh, um, fluid waste. And the brain does not have these, um, these lymphatic vessels. So we, a couple of years ago, the group of 
where I'm working in right now, they found that the brain instead uses, yeah, the, yeah, basically CSF fluid movement throughout the brain in a certain way um, to get rid of metabolic waste. Um, and they call this uh, the glymphatic system. It's a mix of glia cells, hmm. so astrocytes, a typical um, uh, type of brain cells, and the lymphatic system. So it's basically the brain's lymphatic system, just as composition is different than the classical lymphatic system. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, as mentioned in the article, uh, the new layer that has been discovered by the research team is called uh, subarachnoid uh, lymphatic-like membrane, SLYM. Uh, what are its roles and how does the function of SLYM in mice uh, show presence in the adult human brain? So we, we have seen that SLYM, as we, we abbreviated <laughs> It's a bit shorter than SLYM. Uh-huh. It's uh, just a thin layer, which is <clears throat> subdividing the superarachnoid space into two compartments. Both are filled with CSF. And interesting for us, it's that it's not permeable for like bigger proteins. So there's a cutoff size of three kilodalton, which is pretty small. So many proteins in the brain have a kilo, like a size over three kilodalton. So basically, it's it does not al- allow exit from for like bigger proteins from one compartment to the other mm-hmm. um, then we found out that it um, it might represent the brain mesothelium and the mesothelium is basically a, a thin layer of cells which is surrounding all the other organs as well and it's it's usually where um, yeah tissue slide against each other and it's um, it's basic it's kind of like a boundary lubricant so in we think that slim might reduce friction between the brain and skull movements. Mm-hmm. Um, then it also acts as an immune barrier. So we found that uh, immune cells are recruited by slim or waiting into in the slim membrane. And if you have uh, immune response in the brain, it can be like brought into the brain where you need it. Mm-hmm. So, so quite a few uh, different roles, isn't it? Uh, that's that slim has. Um, exactly. Yeah, uh, Doctor <laughs> Dr. Felix. Also, um, has the study of uh, of this of Slim shown any improvements in diseases like Alzheimer's um, and other neurological d- diseases associated with the brain? And and also, could this be considered one of the advancements in brain research? So we we couldn't see improvements in diseases like Alzheimer's disease since we we did not directly look for that. Okay. We looked into aged mice and into inflammation. Um, induced inflammation and could there see that um, this, if you have inflammation or if you have look at age mice, you see that there are more immune cells represented in the slim. So the immune reaction is higher, which is actually interesting because it seems like slim is, is, is part of the immune response pathway of the brain. And now considering that this, this membrane is, is pretty thin, only a few cell layers, so it's easy to be ruptured if you, yeah, for example, get a punch on the head or have another injury mm-hmm. um, and I think the next step is now to investigate okay what happens if you have a ruptured slim does this increase um, inflammation does this uh, increase maybe the, the worse outcome of Alzheimer's disease so looking into Alzheimer's maybe in, into patients who have Alzheimer's to check okay do they have an intact slim membrane or not is there anything happened so I think that those are kind of some kind of the the next steps to to look into it. But it was not part of the study. 
Mm-hmm. Um, it's a big, I think it's a very, I mean, science is, is not very fast. It's a slow process. Yeah. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. No, no, that's, that's very interesting uh, indeed. And I mean, we can see that there's uh, um, slowly and gradually we'll be able to um, try to uh, tackle uh, these, uh, these issues in a far better manner as all the research is being done in uh, at a remarkable pace uh, and God willing, we'll be able to cure such diseases as well. I mean, we were speaking about cancer um, last week, and and uh, the, the professor that we were speaking about at that time, they said that uh, we are we are very good at curing cancer in mice, uh, but we just need to uh, need to uh, uh, think of a way or, or or tweak that a little bit so that we can do it within mankind and humans as well. So it's just a matter of time, um, and God willing, we will reach that uh, stage um, at uh, at one occasion or another as well. Um, thank you, Doctor Felix, for 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 being with us for answering our questions uh, remarkable uh, discoveries that we've seen here um, and very insightful uh, and educational um, discussion that we've had so Jazakallah thank you for that and we hope you have a wonderful day ahead as well thank you very much I hope you you too likewise bye 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 Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number for you to call. That was Dr. Felix Ralph Michael Bainlich, uh, who studied biology at the University uh, of uh, Osnabrück in Germany and got a PhD from uh, the University of Dusseldorf while working at the research center in Hulik uh, on the mechanisms uh, of synaptic vesicle um, acidification. After his PhD, he moved to Denmark, where he now works as a postdoc in the Center of Translational Neuromedicine at the University of Copenhagen. Um, We can see that, uh, of course, that was a very uh, enlightening uh, discussion that we've had uh, with him. And we can see Mm -hmm. that, uh, I mean, one one thing that we we always need to remember, um, and this this is also in regards to the second topic, uh, well, last topic as well, the artificial pancreas for diabetic patients, and if this, uh, whether or not this is the way forward. And we'll be discussing that in just a short while. But before we do so, um, th- uh, there's a very important thing that we always need to uh, to remember. And Jalisa, I, I think I'll ask you for just for the benefit of our listeners. Um, some people say that uh, a science and Islam, or science and religion as a whole, it doesn't have to be Islam. Science and religion um, cannot uh, go hand in hand. You either are a scientist, or you either believe in uh, scientific discoveries. Or you believe in religion? I mean, what 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 would your answer to that be? Do you think that's a, that's a right statement to say, or uh, or, or not so much? Well, <coughs> sorry, <coughs> sorry. Uh, you know, there's always much more that's waiting to be to be discovered, and yeah. uh, you know, si- uh, with with science, we see that as time goes on, science is discovering new things. Uh, for example, this topic itself, mm. um, and uh, when people say that, well, you know. Science has progressed to such a stage where we now don't need religion because we know everything. Well, this topic itself has showed that there's still more to be discovered. Yeah. It's not that man knows everything. You know, man is still uh, discovering things. And, um, you know, this 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 uh, question has also been answered by the... Um, the uh, uh, second worldwide head of the Ahmadi Muslim community, Hazim mm-hmm. Zabashiruddin Mahmoud Ahmad, uh, where he says, he writes in his book, uh, the book is called Invitation to Ahmadiyyat. Mm-hmm. He writes that uh, science is concerned with nature and the handi- and uh, the nature which is the handiwork of God. 
the Quran is the word of God. And he said that there can be no contradiction be- between the two. Yeah. So, you know, it's not like uh, science would say one thing and uh, nature would say something else. It's, it's uh, you know, they both go together. And, um, you know, so for, some, for those who would say that, okay, we don't need religion now because, well, science has progressed to such a stage. Uh, again, you know, it's, uh, it's a baffling question, actually, because mm. um, there's still more to be, to be uh, re- research on. And this topic itself, yeah. uh, you know, answers the question itself. Yeah, <coughs> most certainly. Most certainly. And it, it just goes to show, isn't it, that it's uh, however much we advance as a people, um, we will never be able to to say that oh that, well this is enough we we don't need to progress further. I mean, mankind is such that we we can never stay stagnant. Uh, we always need to be progressing, whether it's in our education, in schools, uh, you want to get better grades, whether it's in our workplaces when you're trying to climb up the ladder and mm. get on top of the, uh, get the best position or whatever it might be, right? You always want to to, to progress and you never want to stay the same. Mm. And similarly, it, the research that we do, I mean, there's so much uh, that still needs to be done. For instance, cancer, right? We still don't have a foolproof um, a remedy for it, mm. a, a fix for it, right? And and it, and uh, but God Almighty has told us that there is no such thing that He has created uh, for which He hasn't also given the, the 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 remedy for right. So anything, any affliction that we are uh, that befalls upon us, there has to be a cure. Yeah, whether there's no we, such illness. Uh, there's no such illness, yeah. right? Whether we know it or not right now, uh, that's a matter of research, isn't it? And the more we research, the more things we will find out. Um, and that's why, um, and, and, and all of the, the discoveries that we do, it, it is according to, to what God has taught us as well. Um, like you mentioned, just echoing that again, that when, whenever uh, we see that there's a contradiction between what science says and what Islam says, then it's not to say that uh, Islam is incorrect and the science has overtaken Islam. Mm. That is because uh, it's the, 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 the scientific research which is done at that time is according to that time. Mm. It's, uh, but the, the teachings of Islam are limitless and boundless. Yeah. And so that is eternal. If we do some research and we say that, oh, well, this kind of goes against what Islam is saying, then I can guarantee you and I can and I can vouch for this as well, that you, when you do further research, it might be a, a, a few months down the line, it might be a few years down the line, maybe a few decades down the line or even centuries. But then you will realize that, no, what Islam was teaching, uh, that was the correct thing. Um, and this is something that we always need to remember as well. Um, we have an audio clip. Of uh, His Holiness, um, Hazrat Mirza Masoor Ahmed, the current head of the worldwide uh, Muslim community, Ahmadi Muslim community, in which he encourages Ahmadi researchers to pursue excellence um, and excel in studies. Uh, this is uh, an address at the uh, AMRA, uh, Ahmadiyya Muslim Research Association uh, International Conference, back from 2019. Consequently, having gathered here and held this conference, you must all consider it your mission to pursue excellence within your chosen fields. You must have, uh, you must leave here with a firm determination in your hearts to follow in the footsteps of Dr. Abdul Salam and those outstanding Muslim scholars and researchers who left behind a rich legacy of knowledge many centuries ago. You must reflect upon 
how you can develop a greater understanding of the world and develop new technologies or systems through which humanity can benefit. As scientists and researchers, it is up to you to exercise your minds and talents to seek out the ways and methods to accomplish great feats of learning. You should stay in contact with one another and particularly with those who are working in similar areas of research and learn from each other. Through mutual discussion and coordination, you may be able to achieve better results. Work with diligence, passion, and above all, constantly seek the help of Allah the Almighty at every step of your academic journey and keep His Majesty at the forefront of your minds. With these words, I pray that may Allah the Almighty enable you to flourish and to achieve great success in your fields of expertise. And may we soon come to witness the dawn of a new Islamic golden age of intellectual progress and advancement led by Ahmadi Muslims across the world. Amen. This clip was taken uh, from His Holiness Hazrat Mizam Masur Ahmed's address at the a- uh, AMRA, Ahmadiyya Muslim Research uh, Association International Conference in 2019. <clears throat> so uh, just uh, going on to the topic that we were, just briefly that we were discussing before, um, you know, the promised Messiah, Hazrat Mizam Ghulam Ahmed, he, uh, in, one, in one place he states that, uh, you know, the Arabic word for heart is uh, qalb. Uh, which refers to anything that causes a thing to circulate. Now, he, he goes on to say that, now we know that circulation of blood depends on the heart. And he says that present-day findings have only recently disclosed, after a long period of effort and contemplation, the phenomenon of blood circulation. However, in Islam, the word qalb is already used for the heart and has therefore not only alluded to this truth, but has also safeguarded it as well. So, uh, you know, it's a um, it's interesting to know that, you know, Islam and, you know, Arabic, the, la- the Arabic, the language itself has uh, these, um, has the Arabic language, uh, the, you know, the language that the Holy Quran was revealed in itself has disclosed many truths to mankind. You know, its words hold a remarkable strength in that it explains scientific matters. Yeah. Um, beautifully put there, and it just it just goes to show how much the how much we can learn from uh, the Holy Quran in itself. Uh, so so beautifully put there, Jadis Zakla. Thank you for that, and that brings us to the last segment for the day: uh, artificial pancreas for diabetic patients. Is this the way forward? Um, according to Diabetes UK, approximately 8% of people with uh, diabetes in the UK have type 1 diabetes. Emerging uh, research highlights that the insertion of an artificial pancreas could help revolutionize how patients manage this condition. It is expected that over 100,000 people in England and Wales with type 1 diabetes could soon be offered this new technology. Um so before we get into 
um, the the artificial pancreas, what it is, what the uses of its technology are, and what Islam teaches us in this regard. Um, uh, Daniel, what, can you explain from the benefit of our listeners, please, what diabetes in itself actually is? Yep. So um, that's a very relevant question regarding the topic. So. Um, Diabetes mellitus DM, more commonly known as diabetes, is a medical condition associated with a high blood glucose. Um, high blood glucose level in the body and problems with carbohydrate metabolism. In this diabetes, in this disease, um, there are abnormalities in the glucose metabolism. Glucose enters our body through f- uh, food and is vital for the normal functioning of the cells. Primarily taken up from the intestines, the glucose is transported to the bloodstream. The pancreas produces a hormone called insulin, which acts on a variety of cells of the liver, fat and muscles. So there are two types of diabetes, type 1 and 2. <coughs> Sorry. The symptoms, diagnosis, follow-up and the long-term complications are almost similar for both types. So, regarding type 1 diabetes, um, this type of diabetes is a really chronic disease that is characterized by reduced or absent production of insulin. Uh, When 90% of these cells get damaged, it will cause symptoms usually. Type 1 diabetes develops at a a, um, relatively younger age, um, uh, somewhere between 30 to 40 years. Um, type 2 diabetes is characterized by reduced production of insulin by the cells of the pancreas. Another cause for the type 2 diabetes is that um, body cells become unresponsive to the insulin hormone produced. Uh, Some groups have a high risk of developing this type of diabetes such as um, the elderly, uh, aged above 65, obese individuals and pregnant women. Um, gestational diabetes, you know, this type of diabetes is a very unusual form of diabetes. Uh, sometimes, you know, <clears throat> it usually occurs um, only in um, pregnant women. After the pregnancy, this form of diabetes disappears. Um, however, these women are at a very high risk of uh, developing type, type 2 diabetes later on, especially <coughs> in the first five years and thus should have a proper follow-up of the blood glucose levels. So, you know, this is a brief summary of uh, what is diabetes, you know, and uh, to understand and, uh, you know, so that our listeners can understand in simple words and uh, um, we can, you know, take care of, um, (coughs) we can take the measures uh, also uh, in terms of, you know, tackling diabetes as well. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, most certainly. And um, when when we when we think about this, um, and when we when we look at um, w- diabetes and all of these things, we, yeah. there's so many different things that we can talk about. There's um, how it uh, affects our bodies um, and uh, other such things as well. Um, okay. But we, we will touch on that in just a short while. But before we do so, uh, we're going to be speaking with our first guest for this segment. We do have with us on the line uh, <coughs> Professor Ali Karamat, who is a consultant in diabetes and uh, at University Hospitals Birmingham NHS Foundation Trust and an honorary professor at uh, Birmingham City University. His clinical areas of interest include role of technology in management of type 1 
on diabetes um, and uh, as well as uh, antenatal and community diabetes. He leads the type 1 diabetes service and is also joint lead for the regional islet and pancreas transplantation services with colleagues from Oxford. He is a leading authority of management of type 1 diabetes and uh, technology and chaired uh, the inpatient guidelines of hospitalized patients off uh, on insulin uh, pumps as part of the Diabetes Technology Network. Uh, he's also part of the Working Group for South Asian Health Foundation, the SAHF, and been uh, involved in writing reports about health inequalities in populations across Europe with diabetes. Assalamualaikum, peace be upon you. Good morning and welcome to The Breakfast Show. Thank you very much, Walaikum Assalam, and thank you very much for inviting me to your program. You're, you're very welcome, and thank you for, for being with us and joining us today. Um, we're talking about, of course, a very interesting topic, um, how an artificial pancreas for diabetic uh, diabetic patients um, has been discovered, and if this whether or not this is the way forward. Um, and in this regard, the first question that we wanted to ask you was, what is the difference, uh, first of all, between type 1 diabetes and type 2 diabetes, and in which diabetes is technology most influential? Uh, That's a really sort of basic and very important way to start because there's still a lot of sort of people who don't understand the difference between them. So in terms of the diabetes, type 1 diabetes, to put it simply, is where the body is not really producing enough of the hormone called insulin. So as a result, the body is deficient in insulin and therefore you do need to provide the person living with diabetes with insulin. So these would be the people who would be managed with insulin injections, for example. And generally speaking, um, type 1 diabetes tends to present um, at a younger age, although we do see it now presenting at um, age above 50 as well, but generally speaking, it tends to present in a younger age group. Type 2 diabetes is a lot more common, so perhaps 90% of the diabetes we see is more um, type 2 diabetes, which is associated with lifestyle changes, tends to present slightly older in life and can be managed to start with with lifestyle, with oral agents, man, um, managing your diet and exercise. And then perhaps they might need even insulin here, but generally those would be the, f- the first port of call would be um, tablets, adjusting diet, lifestyle, um, and then considering if they need any further treatments. Yeah. So, um, Professor Likraman, can you please uh, elaborate us on that? What have you done to improve access to technology in deprived and ethnic minority populations? So, as part of South Asian Health Foundation, we have uh, been um, involved in writing reports for um, Houses of Parliament where we've talked about the access to technologies and treatments amongst the minority ethnic population and also in the deprived areas. Um, in terms of access to technology, um, NHS England has done a lot of uh, work on this area and people like Professor Partha Kaur, the National Clinical Director, deserve a lot of credit for making sure that technology in type 1 is now accessible to everybody living with type 1 diabetes. I would actually ask, ask the question for somebody with type 1 diabetes, if they're not on technology, why is that uh, not happened? Because everybody with type when diabetes certainly should be having access to technology. It is sometimes a challenge when you go into some of the the inner city areas, for example, where people may not be uh, approaching directly for um, health access, and that's where you need to go out of your way and actually go out into the communities. So we have done work with general practices, and we've done work in the community as well to try and increase the awareness 
Um, and also me and some of my colleagues have gone into places like mosques and gurdwaras as well to try and it sort of improve the, um, the, the access and improve the information with regards to diabetes amongst the general population. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so as we can see, a lot of work is being done, which is uh, which is great uh, to to see. Um, until now, many people assume that diabetes is a genetic disease. Is is how much truth is uh, within this statement, and how can this actually happen? So, this is a very really interesting debate because um, actually, in one of our meetings, we had this debate as well: is it genes or is it lifestyle that cause diabetes? Um, and I think there's probably a, a little bit of element of truth in both both uh, both sides. Mm-hmm. So we know that with type 2 diabetes, if you have some families, it tends to run much more commonly in some families. And even with type 1 diabetes, it's got association with other immune conditions. So there is a genetic component to it. But it's not to say that by managing your sort of diet and lifestyle, for example, for type 2 diabetes, you can be able to prevent it. In terms of type 1, it's a little bit more tricky. Uh, there are some... Uh, interesting work being done at the moment, again, being led from Birmingham, looking at screening for type 1 diabetes and also some newer treatments and drugs which have come about, which have been shown to cause some uh, impressive uh, delays in progression to type 1 diabetes. And that would be quite exciting because if that comes out, then you could certainly look at some families where there's high sort of risks of type 1 diabetes and try and um, address it by offering it to those families. So, yeah, so, you know, uh, Professor, so what organs are damaged by diabetes and how much, you know, it damages to the body, um, if you can elaborate us? So in terms of the organs that can be affected by diabetes, uh, common sort of organs that we talk about are eyes, kidneys and feet. Those are the three common organs which can be affected by diabetes. Um, and in terms of the way you can prevent it by managing the diabetes better, good control of diabetes, but also improving the control, not just of diabetes, but also things like blood pressure, not smoking, physical activity, all these elements play a big role as well. Okay. Does this happen in both type of diabetes, diabetes 1 or 2, or does it, does it happen with only one diabetes? No, it happens with both type 1 and type 2 diabetes. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you also mentioned earlier that uh, if we have a balanced diet, if we look after uh, our uh, nutritional values of the, of the foods that we eat, um, then we can avoid um, uh, diabetes, even if it is uh, running through the family. Um, could you advise our listeners how to avoid diabetes and what are the treatments for, for type 1 diabetes as well? So in terms of preventing the um, onset of diabetes, the most important thing is to maintain the healthy um, diet and healthy lifestyle. And it's um, there are lots of different diets which are around and lots of people will talk about this. I think the most important thing is a diet that you can afford mm-hmm. and a diet that you can actually maintain and sustain because that's the most important principle of any, any dietary therapy. It's no good talking about the most fancy diet in the world if people can't afford it. In the current cost of living situation, it's really important that whatever we advise, people are able to afford it. And that's where type 2 diabetes in particular is a lot more of a public health issue as well because actually we can do a lot of work on treatments and things but because of the uh, the incidence of diabetes how high it is unless we actually address it from the public health angle and look at the diets and things which are available it is not going to be possible to um, really address it just by just by treatment so 
that would be my main advice. Obviously, there is different mm-hmm. diets available. Some people talk a lot more about restricting carbohydrates and things like that. The important thing is to have everything in moderation and everything in a balanced way and also combining it with physical activity. So as we can see, you know, the number of people with diabetes, is it's very high in some countries. Um, mm-hmm. Is this also affected by the level of development um, It's an interesting area and I think there is a suggestion, especially if you look at even in UK, for example, the incidence of diabetes is a lot higher in some of the deprived uh, uh, multi-ethnic areas, for example. And part of it is obviously genetic as well, with some ethnicities being more um, impacted by diabetes. But part of it is also because of difficult access to the sort of foods that we talked about earlier. If you've got difficult access to sort of the healthy foods, then people are going to struggle to get them. And as a result, they're more likely to develop um, diabetes. Also, we know with a lot of our South Asian foods, they do tend to be quite high and quite sort of uh, full of carbohydrates and things like that. So really, it is important that we, 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 we address these elements. But certainly in terms of the incidence of diabetes in countries, we look at places like India, Pakistan, um, Bangladesh, there's very, very high incidence of diabetes in those countries. And part of it is genetic, as I said, with ethnicity as well. And part of it is also with the foods, the lifestyle and everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, certainly. Um, thank you for that, uh, uh, Professor Ali Karamat, for being with us, for answering our questions and sharing your insight in regards to this very important topic. Uh, thank you once again. We hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank Bye. you. Bye-bye. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight. That was Professor Ali Karamat sharing his views with us, uh, who is, of course, as we mentioned earlier, a consultant in diabetes at the University um, uh, Hospitals of Birmingham NHS Foundation Trust and an honorary professor at Birmingham City University. His clinical areas of interest include, include role of technology in management of type 1 uh, diabetes as well as antenatal and community diabetes as well. He leads the type 1 Diabetes Service and is also joint lead for the regional islet and pancreas transplantation services with colleagues um, with uh, 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 sorry uh, uh, he's also leading authority of management of type 1 diabetes and technology and chaired the inpatient guidelines of hospitalized patients on insulin pumps as part of the diabetes technology network um, and with that we are going to be going straight to our next guest for the show we do have with us on the line Dr. Charlotte Bowton uh, who is a clinical lecturer in diabetes and uh, uh, endocrinology at the University of Cambridge her research focuses on the use of diabetes technology uh, Technologies, in particular, closed loop, which is automated insulin delivery systems, to improve outcomes for people with type one and type two diabetes. Her research evaluates the efficacy and uh, safety of a fully closed loop approach for adults with type two diabetes, both in the acute hospital setting and also in outpatients' home studies. She is also a clinical investigator on a number of trials investigating the impact of hybrid closed loop systems in children and adults with type one diabetes. Diabetes. Uh, she has an interest in broadening access to technology and implementation, developing educational tools for healthcare professionals and people with diabetes to ultimately support wider adoption and reimbursement. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you. Good morning and welcome to The Breakfast Show. 
Good morning and thank you for the invitation to be with you today. You're very welcome and thank you for, for joining us, for being with us. Um, we're speaking about, uh, as you know, artificial pancreas for, for diabetic uh, patients. And, and the first question that we wanted to ask you in this regard was, is it possible to restore the damaged function of the pancreas? So it's a really good question and it depends a little bit on the type of diabetes. So um, where people have type 1 diabetes and the body is um, attacking the the pancreas, it's much harder to prevent that from happening. But there are lots of early trials seeing whether we can delay the onset of type 1 diabetes. In type 2 diabetes, there's a bit more promise with this. So um, there's something called remission of type 2 diabetes, where even after you've been diagnosed with it, we used to think that it was a progressive um, condition. So it continued to get worse and worse as we got older and the longer we had it. But there's been recent studies that have shown that if you're able to follow a very low-calorie diet or if you had bariatric surgery, so um, a surgical procedure to, to lose weight, then those can cause remission of diabetes and improve the function of the pancreas. But these are quite extreme treatments for it and not not suitable for everyone with type 2 diabetes. Mm -hmm, Interesting. Um, Some of your research focuses on the use of uh, new technologies to improve outcomes for uh, people with diabetes. Uh, Could you tell us uh, a little more about the various technologies that are currently being used? Yeah, absolutely. So I think um, the use of diabetes technologies has really exploded in the last sort of five or six years. And most of us will have seen people um, with diabetes wearing various technologies sort of as you walk down the street, particularly in the summer. Mm-hmm. So the most um, commonly used technology is something called a glucose sensor mm-hmm. that people wear on either usually the back of the arm or the tummy. Um, and it measures the glucose levels constantly, um, which makes it much easier for people to be able to keep an eye on on how their diabetes is going and to be able to um, change their treatment if required. So previously, people used to have to prick their fingers several times a day, and now it's much easier. This device lasts for about 10 days to 14 days, and they can see all the time what their glucose is, and if it goes too low, it will alarm, and if it goes too high, it will alarm. So that's made life a lot easier for people, particularly with type 1 diabetes. Um, Mm -hmm. And there's also insulin pumps, so where people used to inject insulin several times a day, there's now an option to have insulin constantly being delivered under the skin via a small device, an insulin pump, which is normally worn sort of onto the uh, on the stomach uh, or arms or legs and just needs to be changed every three days. So again, these have really sort of helped reduce the burden of managing diabetes. And I guess the most exciting technology that we have at the moment is something called a closed loop system or an artificial pancreas. And that combines a glucose sensor and an insulin pump with a computer algorithm that can automatically give the right amount of insulin to keep the glucose in the in the target range that we're aiming for so that allows people to switch off a little bit so they don't constantly have to be monitoring their glucose and administering insulin and that's really where we are at the, at the moment hmm. i mean it's it's amazing how 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 much we've advanced in uh, in technology uh, and research which has allowed us to to do such things isn't it i mean like you mentioned it, it's it, it, you can kind of take a set uh, uh, a, a setback uh, and and just relax a little bit because you know that these um things will go off like the alarm on your uh, on on your tummy or the back of your arm or other such things um that you mentioned and it, and it's amazing to see um i, I was unaware of this so it's it's, it's quite in, it, very interesting 
Um, and I, I <clears throat> I'm, I'm very much amazed by by the advancements that we've seen in this. Um, also, Dr. Boughton, uh, does the use of pancreatic technology have any kind of side effects on on other organs? Uh, in uh, simple words, no. Some okay. people don't like wearing devices. So sometimes, particularly teenagers, um, they are worn on the body. So it's not mm-hmm. for everybody. Some people don't like to have a device attached to them. Um, often, after trying it, it's not as bad as they, they think it will be. But there can be concerns about sort of um, being a bit more self-conscious. But I think the more that people wear these devices, the more mainstream it becomes. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- there's really only benefits in terms of if this technology can improve people's glucose control, then there are definitely benefits on other organs, the eyes, the kidneys, and the nerves potentially affecting the feet and, and uh, heart as well. So um, no negative side effects on other organs, but certainly the potential for lots of positive effects. Mm-hmm, I see. <clears throat> Sorry, excuse me. Um, so uh, what are some uh, factors which cause blood sugar levels to rise? So this is really tricky and this is what makes managing diabetes really hard because there are so many different things that can cause glucose levels to rise Um, Mm. and that's why an automation really is the only way that this can be sort of managed really effectively. So the most common reason is because somebody's eaten something with carbohydrates in but also fat and protein in the diet can also cause the glucose to rise. Mm. But even simple things, so when we wake up in the morning and our wake-up hormones um, also affect our glucose stress which we can't easily control um, so there's about sort of 50 60 different things that can cause our glucose levels to go up or down and trying to stay on top of that every day can cause real sort of burnout of managing diabetes so mm, I think it's yeah. a really great question it just shows how impossible it is for people to manage their diabetes often mm-hmm. Uh, I I I I thought normally it would be, uh, for instance, stress and and the the food that we we consume. But fifty or sixty categories. I mean, that's 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 a, quite a quite a lot of different uh, ways in which it can the sugar level can rise, isn't it? Exactly, and and sometimes it's not even something that you notice. Being more tired one day can cause your glucose levels to rise, or having an infection, or anything like that. And the minute you sort of go for a walk or do any exercise, well, that causes the glucose levels to fall. So trying to keep on top of it can be really challenging Mm -hmm. for people with diabetes. Yeah, no, no, I can imagine. Um, Also, in the long term, how would uh, diabetes lead to kidney damage? Uh, Why why does this happen? So kidney damage is one of the commonest, what we call long-term complications of diabetes, and that's mainly caused by having higher than the recommended uh, glucose levels for a long period of time. So that's why it's so important to try and keep the glucose levels um, in the target range. So the, the longer the glucose levels are high, the more damage it can cause to the blood vessels that supply the kidneys. And that gradually causes people's kidney function to decline and ultimately can cause some people to to need dialysis, um, which has quite significant impact on people's quality of life and takes up quite a lot of time. So that's what we're hoping that if we can improve people's glucose control early on, then we're not going to have people who end up with uh, needing dialysis or having um, effect on their eyes. But it's mainly because of high blood glucose levels affecting the the um, the blood vessels and the nerves that supply these organs. Mm-hmm, I see. And uh, you know, one one important question is um, uh, how do uh, diabetic patients know that their condition is uh, well controlled? 
So I think this is a really important question because lots of it um, with diabetes management is about uh, taking care of things day to day and it's very difficult the way we used to check whether somebody's diabetes was well controlled was doing a blood test every three months Mm -hmm. but really that's quite difficult if you're trying to manage it accurately day to day. Mm. So these glucose sensors have really helped change the way that we understand what good glucose control is. So if somebody can see what their glucose levels are doing every day and can see that they're spending most of their day with their glucose in the target range then it's really um, reinforcing that actually that their diabetes is is well controlled and perhaps those times when their glucose levels are running a bit high they could think about changing something either a lifestyle or a new medication to help with that so I think glucose sensors are really helpful for that and I think the other thing is it allows people to know whether they have diabetes because an awful lot of people have diabetes and don't even know it Mm -hmm. so I think um, getting a blood test from, from your GP to check if especially if you have risk factors for diabetes, is also important as well as keeping good control in the long term. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see. That's yeah, it's really, really important and uh, great points. Jazakallah mm. uh, for that. Uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Barton. We are coming up to the eight, uh, the nine o'clock news now, so unfortunately that's all the time that we have. Uh, but a very insightful uh, conversation and discussion, um, and I'm sure our listeners benefited from that uh, as much as we did as well. So thank you for that, and we hope you have a wonderful day ahead. Thank you very much, and you too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number for you. That was Dr. Charlotte uh, Charlotte Boughton, who's a clinical lecturer in diabetes at the University of Cambridge. Her research focuses on use of diabetes technologies, in particular closed loop systems, to improve outcomes for people with type one and type two diabetes. Uh, diabetes, and she's also a clinical investigator on a number of trials investigating the impact of hybrid closed loop systems in children and adults with type one diabetes, along with uh, many other things. Yeah, so I think one point that really stood out to me was um, how someone can control their, this uh, their, uh, this by maintaining a a, a good diet, mm-hmm. and um, you know this is something that Islam also you know, emphasizes on that you know we should also be eating that which is um, you know halal, yeah. uh, which is permissible, but Islam also says that we should eat that w- what is tayyab, mm. uh, which is pure, and you know tayyab, uh, you know um, it doesn't it doesn't mean that everything which is pure. Uh, it, it's not necessary that something that is pure for one person is pure for the other. For example, some people can be allergic to nuts or mm. eggs, uh, though they are very beneficial. But at, in this case, though it, it is halal for them, but it wouldn't be tayyib for them to go and do this. So, uh, you know, uh, looking out our, you know, our health, we should also cater for you know these things and uh, uh, make sure that our diet is uh, helping our health and, uh, you know, um, because uh, you know the diet, some what we consume is uh, ultimately what will uh, you know uh, m- make us uh, healthy. So if you've got a very bad diet, then obviously you you you'll see that you become very lazy or you you tend to uh, not want to do things. But if a healthy diet and a healthy lifestyle mm. will enable someone to you know uh, lead a productive life and a, you know a, a good and healthy life as well. Yeah, well, certainly, yeah, beautifully put there. I mean, there, there's there's different ways in which we can control our diabetes, isn't it? Like you mentioned, following a a, a good food plan uh, mm. is definitely one of them. Uh, there's exercise and increasing physical activity. There's monitoring blood sugar levels, uh, like Dr. Cowton mentioned as well. The take, taking prescribed medication and uh, visiting your doctor regularly as well. Um, 
the one thing that I'd like to end with, uh, end our show with today, is the divine attribute of Ashafi. And this is uh, the Arabic uh, for the healer, which is, of course is, um, is, uh, is about God Almighty. And with the recent advancement of technology and medicine, it has become quite easy to forget the cures and remedies which humans have been able to discover. And these are actually only due to the blessings bestowed upon us by God Almighty. It is Him who has uh, put it in the minds of people that these are the things that uh, you can do or should do to to better uh, remedy these things. Um, but again, that is uh, all the time that we have for today. Uh, join us again tomorrow for, for another very interesting uh, set of topics. Um, until then, here is the 9 o'clock news.